Perspective this week is looking at energy, climate change, food and regulation. Joni Farragher MHK hopes to persuade June Tinwell to permanently knock on the head plans to extract fossil fuels from our territorial seabed. On the other hand, Kroger director Eric Evenson very much hopes his company will be allowed to extract the gas. And with the Department of Environment, Food and Agriculture creaking at the seams with regulators, has government really got the balance right between regulation and delivery? This week sees the June Tinwald, a fairly light uh, order paper. Uh, I think it's fair to say that members will not be going back on Wednesday. There's a couple of uh, motions that Joni Farragher has has got down on the agenda and uh, we're joined by uh, Joni Farragher, MHK, uh, Claire Barber, Minister for Environment, Food and Agriculture and Eric Evenson, who is a director of Kroger, which kind of then gives us a little hint as to what Joni's one of the the more uh, controversial uh, motions is is uh, actually about. So I suppose if we start with you, Joni Farragher, you don't really seem to want Kroger to carry on with gas extraction. <laughs> Thanks for that opener there, Phil. So I've brought this motion to Timwald because I believe that it is a matter of national strategic importance and that it should have come to Timwald in the first place. Um, I think that one of my reasons for bringing it is because Almost all of us, I'd say, maybe potentially all of us who were elected in September had significant climate pledges in our manifestos. So therefore, we know that it is um, it, there's a mandate for climate action. And we also know that it is a big issue um, for the electorate. So I feel it's important to have an open debate that's on the record in public over this issue, where we are going with our energy in future. And you are very much saying that Tin- Tinwald is of, of the opinion that. Uh, so Tinwald motions, um, unlike the, the one which uh, Tim Glover put down, was it last uh, month, uh, where he was, uh, he was, he was instructing uh, council ministers? Of course, Tinwald isn't in a position to do that. Tinwald can be of an opinion, and council ministers is rather foolish then not to, to follow the opinion of Tinwald. But uh, you, you, you can't really instruct through these motions, can you? Well, no, not really. That's what that's hence that I have put down that Timwald is of the opinion that and that's that's really what I'm trying to pull out here is what you know, what is the opinion of Timwald? Um, do we have a genuine idea of what the opinion of the public is? Um, I think from various climate change consultations, we do have an overwhelming mandate for robust action on um, climate change, climate adaptation um, moving forward with renewable sources of energy. Um, And to me, it seems that this um, project to extract fossil gas from our territorial waters might not necessarily um, align with that public mandate. So uh, I suppose jumping over to uh, Eric uh, Evenson, uh, you're a director, obviously, of uh, Kroger. Um, Yesterday's men, you should have been doing this years ago, surely. Uh, surely, yes. I can understand what Johnny is saying, though. I mean, the license was issued in uh, 2019 and it would have been debated and discussed in the previous uh, government or parliament. Uh, and it is always good to actually have transparency and get out into the public what's going on. Um, what had ha- happened now is that we simply got an extension to one phase within the license, and the license has always been to 2048. But uh, from Kroger's perspective, if there's any... Um, 
thoughts about we have any hidden agendas where we're not going to go through the transition phase with uh, wind, wind power and hydrogen as part of the gas extraction, then we need to get it out in the public and tell them, no, that's, we are, that's what we're going to do. And that's what we have financing for. So I, I can see how our motion is bringing it into this parliament, if that's what it's called, because it, this, the, the license was issued in the last parliament. And, and I rather cruelly, the last time uh, we were mentioning this, uh, suggested that Co- Council of Ministers had uh, granted this extension um, purely because it was the easiest way to, to knock the whole thing into the long grass. Because at the time, the general view was that uh, Kroger didn't have the funding to proceed and uh, this was just going to gradually uh, disappear under a bush and wither away. Um, presumably, Eric, you have a different view. Well, yes, that, I have a different perspective, different view. The the uh, development and the extraction from the gas field is is the base load for our, our power generation in the future. And as we put in the, the wind towers and then uh, start to generate hydrogen now, we're actually going down the IEA's path to coming to 2050 and being carbon neutral or carbon negative, right? And so uh, the fact that it's just extracting gas and we've heard things in the public like fracking and all that, that's that's just noise. What we're actually doing is going down a a transitional path, right? And um, when it comes to funding, well, that's, that has uh, really uh, gotten very simplistic in the last little while because if you see the energy crisis that's developed in the world and uh, the this, this spike on that energy crisis that the Russian attack on Korea, Ukraine did, it's just getting worse. And the other side of that is is if you look at the IEA's um, pathway, there's we should have around the world, I'm not just talking about the Isle of Man, but around the world have been putting in much more renewable powers and renewable technologies than, than this has progressed so far today. And so, I mean, from Kroger's, Kroger's perspective, we want to show that a small jurisdiction like the Isle of Man with the resources that we have here with the gas, the wind, the sun, we can actually transition properly and successfully. And then we can actually show other smaller nations that aren't getting money from the big nations like they're supposed to through the COP26 process, how we, they can replicate, replicate that process in their own jurisdictions and be a success themselves. Joni Farragher then, that doesn't seem unreasonable, does it? Sure, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to do here is to ensure that we go into this project with our eyes open and with all the facts, because um, with all due respect to, to um, Eric, obviously he is approaching this as a business person and he, he you know there's a vested interest there in terms of profit making um, i don't have any vested interests i just want the best for the for the island and for my children and for you know my future grandchildren um, that is the only reason that is the only axe that i have to grind is actually what is the right thing to do um, we have seen in this administration several um, financial red herrings and I don't want us to be lumbered as an island with a project that is a stranded asset um, and as far as the um, science goes um, the uh, General Secretary of the United Nations has, has said that pursuit of new fossil fuel projects is moral and economic madness so not only is it morally wrong but economically speaking there is no future in it that is what that is what the science is saying that's what the United Nations are backing them by saying so I just want us to have all of the facts um, before we actually take this decision which is a big decision in terms of our future strategy 
And Claire Barber, it's difficult for you to comment, I know, because uh, Council of Ministers has to make various decisions at different points on uh, with regards to licences and various business-related things. But I suppose on the one hand, you're, you're Minister for Environment um, and climate change has to be top of your list of, of important things to, to try and prevent. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you are a member of Council of Ministers at a time when we have a massive uh, cost of living problem and uh, depleted uh, resources. So I, I can see how, how it might be difficult for you as Minister to, to, to reach a conclusion as to what you would support. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that energy strategy sits within DEFA. Um, so there's a, a piece of work which I'm committed to coming back to July, Tim, with um, around the offshore energy um, production strategy um, and whether that needs reviewing. So I'll be making a statement to July, Tim, because actually there's a, there's a bigger conversation and wider than hydrocarbons here around what we think future energy production for the Isle of Man should look like, where we should prioritise. And that's certainly something in terms of the renewable energies that the council ministers are incredibly passionate about progressing um, and you know, th- there's a number of things around the uh, capacity that we have with the grid as well as you know, where we where we go in terms of private or public investment in in renewable energy um, and almost certainly there'll be a, a mixed approach to that but there's a lot of questions that we're, we're certainly working through um, in terms of the the climate change debate I think for, for me, there was sort of a very clear delineation between a legacy license, something that had already been issued, and whether we would start going out now saying, come and have a look at all of our territorial, water, territorial waters and see if you'd like to, to go digging for, for gas or oil. Um, and I think they would be very different conversations, um, obviously, on balance. And I think it's interesting, you know, both Joni and I got elected in Douglas East, and yet we had quite a different approach to this, both in hustings and on the doorsteps. Um, and I think I was more of the opinion that if the climate change um, carbon uh, emissions could be managed within the project, that actually I was comfortable with it progressing, which is ultimately um, one of the conditions that's been placed on um, the, the project. Eric, obviously this is only going to go somewhere if Kroger can actually fund it and um, to a certain extent you've been stymied in as much as there was the, the um, uh, would you or wouldn't you get the, the extension to the licence for, for uh, exploration. Uh, you've now got that licence so presumably work has been ongoing since then to try and ensure that you have got the funding to keep uh, this project alive. Yes, and we, we do have the funding to keep the project alive, and we do have um, several uh, large institutional investors that are, are willing to uh, invest in Kroger through the entire process. Uh, we'll be putting an £800 million investment into the Isle of Man. Um, the political, as you were saying, the license, getting the, that extension approved in the license was quite critical to giving confidence to investors that uh, the project was going to go ahead. Because if we were stopped in the middle of a license by something, what we would in the energy business consider a small consideration, something that would take two weeks in the UK, for example, that draws their confidence down thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe this is, uh, is going to be a bit too difficult and take too long to put through. Um, but the funding side is going very well at the moment. That's about all I can say on it at the moment. <laughs> and I suppose horrible situation that's happening in Eastern Europe at the moment uh, in Ukraine is playing a little bit into Kroger's hands because it is 
demonstrating the the fragility of 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 the supply of the energy source that yeah. we are most reliant on. It is. I mean, renewables are, are variable, and we still don't have the technologies today to provide a, a, what I call a base load, is, is what uh, gas is doing for us today. So when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, the Ukrainian thing highlights it, but it's not the basis of the energy crisis we have today. The basis of the energy crisis we have today started in July 2020, when the IEA report came out in May 21. It was made based on facts and statistics prior to that, where we had a very serious drop in our consumption. After that, of course, COVID went away and consumption went up tremendously. Uh, I was watching a debate in the House of Lords in the UK a couple of days ago. And yes, uh, we need to, to, to kind of wean ourselves down a little bit on the way we use hydrocarbons and move on to renewables. But... It, it's a strategic national interest to have energy security. It's also in our national interest for our economy to have a robust economy that is going to have several different aspects to it instead of the fairly narrow ones we have today. You know, if you think about in the Hustings meetings, there was a lot of talk about young people having jobs and being able to, to afford houses on the Isle of Man. Think of the well-being of our young people that can go across to the UK, get a degree and come back to the island and work into the, in the technologies that they've studied on with a very, very nice wage so that they combine themselves together, they can buy a house. I mean, this is actually, it's, it's supplement, and it's, it's almost, I don't want to use the word detrimental, but it is a, a, an economy that we will, we will produce that starts on day one from the day we first start investing the first one pound of the 800 million. It starts then. I was in Norway during the, uh, in 79, et cetera, when that, that economy grew so fast. And, and of course, they're social democrats, but what they did is they spread the, the uh, investment and the different technologies that the energy industry use all around the coastline. Those technologies create an export market because they're not just creating them for the energy industry. There's, there's technologies, manufacturing, et cetera, that can be used and be exported abroad to other jurisdictions for other types of industries and manufacturing. So it's all kind of a round ball of, of uh, what do we do to, to move the island man ahead? Don't we have the strategic national interest of, of uh, energy security, but also our, our economy, our political security, all of it's wrapped around this because it is such a huge uh, addition to our economy in the future. But of course, th this, this is a great selling point for an argument being put maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but uh, you know, anyone who, who reads any of the, the, the statements from the United Nations uh, in relation to uh, climate change can't help but think, actually, this is, this is yesterday's business. We, we, we really should be moving on from this. Yeah, that, that's kind of a, an, an unusual perspective when you think about it because the world's energy experts and, and research developers, et cetera, management, they're in the energy companies today. And those energy companies are transitioning the same way as Kroger is going to do a transition so that the energy companies of the future may not look like what you see today with coal and oil because that will most likely slowly but surely disappear. But even if you look at the IEA's uh, pathway, it's still gas, hydrogen, ammonia, it, it, it just lengthens out the uh, value of the resource over a longer period of time. Kroger's not going to have any uh, abandoned or, or stranded assets at all. But the, uh, you know, the, the, the general view is we shouldn't be extracting fossil fuels anymore. You know, we shouldn't be looking to new reserves to, to extract. Well, the general view of who? Well, that seems to be the view that's coming out of the United Nations. 
of some parts of it, and there's other parts of the world that have a different view to that. Um, I think the views, if you took today's views, considering the crisis that we're into now and the fact that we have so many people in fuel poverty, that view doesn't make sense. And we have to look towards our own people and our own nation, not towards what everyone else is doing, because in the end of the day, our carbon footprint is minuscule. So we need to protect ourselves and grow ourselves to get where we need to go to carbon neutrality. And, and, and Minister, I mean, the, the obvious thing in, when it comes to energy is we shouldn't be using as much as we currently are. And uh, you'll know because uh, your department has some um, level of responsibility for this through building control that uh, we have some very, very leaky houses on the island. We've known this for at least 20, maybe 30 years um, and yet still we're waiting for any significant big uh, government initiative to improve the insulation of our homes. Are we likely to see anything in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've um, looked at the, the SAP ratings, for example, and introducing that for new builds. And then obviously at some point that will be also expanded then out into those um, properties that are sold at rental there'll be I think link points in time when it would be logical to introduce it for different properties um, but it's absolutely right that we are looking to expand the green living grants um, make those easier and more targeted that it wasn't working I think that's fair to say so there's some changes that are coming through in that regard um, and also the energy efficiency scheme to make uh, it easier for someone who wants to put insulation for example in their roof um, which should be relatively straightforward but they'll be able to actually achieve that through the scheme where previously it had been challenging because of some of the limitations so I think there are some quick wins I think longer term there are um, plenty of other things we should be doing around new builds which we're looking at um, hopefully um, speeding up the the time frames for which they're implemented um, to be absolutely clear around our commitment that we will move away from um, you know fossil fuel um, boilers in new properties that's a commitment that has been made um, I think we have to recognize though we have to have a phased implementation for people who have those in their in their homes already um, because at a time when the fuel cost itself is rising the idea of uh, someone having to change their boiler is already causing people concern when it might not happen for 10 years even um, so we have to look at how government provides that support both perhaps in terms of grants for those who can't afford but also in terms of um, information you're making that accessible also making sure then um you know and through the health and safety directorate which again is in uh defer as you know make sure we've got the people who are skilled and qualified to be able to do the maintenance on those new systems because it's not the same skills as people who might have been um gas safe registered so there's a number of things that have to happen that certainly are keeping uh, me and and the defer team very much uh, busy and and feature is you know, throughout the department plan as well um in in some of the areas we've highlighted that there's a, a need to progress but isn't it time that government actually grasped the nettle on this i mean i i suppose that you know in, in terms of getting getting people motivated to change when you when you've such a long period during which people can actually make these changes there's no really imperative particularly in, at a time when money is a bit stretched in, in, in households there's no imperative really for people to change is there I think there are as with everything there are the people who are early adopters people who are doing it because that's their choice and they want to make their um, property more efficient they want to make their property and they've got the means to do it and I think it's important to recognize it's not just the desire it's also the ability um, I also think you know some of the things we've done around planning looking at permitted development orders making some of those changes easier in terms of the processes are beneficial but there's always more we can do so I'm not going to pretend we've got it 
perfect by any stretch um and you know that's the work we're also doing obviously i sit on the climate change transformation board um you know and there's we've put we've chosen to put the climate change um, actions into our department plan because we recognize they're just so close and interlinked with the work that that we do um so there's a number of things in there where we are looking at how we can do that a little bit faster certainly for the new build properties because it does seem frustrating that we're seeing both government buildings, and I mean, I asked questions in the previous house around that, um, but also private buildings being developed without the, the the current infrastructure, essentially. So we're putting in legacy um, boilers that realistically are the wrong thing to be putting into new builds. And I think that's the first obvious quick win to me. And if we can you know, progress that faster, that I think would be really beneficial. And Joni, I mean, all this, all this costs money, doesn't it? And government has spent a lot of uh, reserves in, in over the last uh, few years in relation to the uh, the covid uh, situation so so what's the labor party's plan where does the money come from to to fund all the the radical change that's required so that we then don't need to extract fossil fuels Wow, that's a question and a half, Phil. <laughs> um, I don't think that anybody has the answer to say how we will fund every one of these these components because Kroger would say they have. I don't think they would. Would I they? Think they would to fund every single aspect of climate change. Everything. What he's talking about first is the energy efficiency into homes, where we can. Uh, this is what the UK government is spending six point nine billion pounds on: is is the energy efficiency, how people use it, and as. Uh, Minister yeah. was talking I think we've about. got we've got a very specific problem over here because uh, we've got one heck of a lot more of our properties that are actually ETG rated um, as a, even in comparison with the UK who are behind even the rest of Europe and um, so most of our housing stock actually is going to require retrofitting and we don't have any providers who who can retrofit properties right now whereas they do in the UK so we we have a very specific hurdle to get over which is going to cost us more and is 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 going to be because it's it, it doesn't have the economies of scale I guess it's going to be a lot more expensive for us and um, one of the one of the things that we have advocated um, in the past is green new deal um principles and green new deal philosophy which would obviously be um I think in terms of we were talking earlier about demographics, it would attract younger people here and um, far more so, I guess, than pursuing old fossil fuel industries would do if we were actually being quite innovative and looking at adopting Green New Deal principles. That would be very attractive to so, so, young so people. So what, 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 what are those principles? Well, it's, it, do you know what? The Green New Deal is actually a, a very, very broad set of principles that I couldn't, it would take a whole programme to explain. But primarily speaking, what you're looking at doing is um, upskilling existing sectors, people who work in exi existing sectors um, to provide the new technologies that we will need in the future to tr transition over to sustainable um, projects and sustainable technologies. So the, the whole idea behind the Green New Deal is um, a just transition, which is obviously what our government has committed to potentially without actually understanding what that phrase meant um, but we have committed to a just transition um, so that that's in our climate change act so we do need to we do need to start actually looking at what that means in practice and you know to me a green new deal is the best way to but but in in and of itself it, it seems like a fairly complex thing but once you start looking at it and being able to explain it to people um, you, you can break down what it actually means but effectively you're looking at um, just transition leaving nobody behind and um, 
training up, upskilling people in existing technologies to uh, transition our economy to the technologies that we need for the future. And Kroger would suggest that substantial revenues will come into the government and as a result of those substantial revenues, the Minister uh, here and uh, Minister for Infrastructure will have more funds available to be able to uh, retrofit and and, change the whole uh, energy system surely surely that's something that you're trying to effectively say no no we're not going to have that we're not going to have that money and if if you're getting rid of that uh, money through your motion um there must be an alternative surely yeah well exactly kind of like i've just outlined really because i'm not saying let's get rid of that money i'm saying let's generate that money via a future-proof method which would be green new deal Okay, so how does that generate the money? Because that, that, that's the bit I'm not... I mean, you can see Because from... it is exactly the same way that um, Eric was, was discussing earlier on, that we would be um, making our economy more robust by creating new roles and creating new jobs. That's exactly what a Green New Deal would do. Would do. So the, the, the reason it's called a Green New Deal, really, and it is a British um, idea in the first um, principle. Um, it, was, it was developed in Britain in the UK, but it's become known as the Green New Deal because it, it is effectively based based upon, um, it, well, not based upon, but it has the same impact as Roosevelt's um, New Deal for um, yeah. following the Depression. So what he was what he was looking at was revitalising the economy um, by creating lots of new jobs, and it and it worked. So it, this is just this is just a kind of updated, modernised. Let's let's transition our economy at the same time as addressing inequality, at the same time as making sure that we um, don't leave anybody behind. So those are the principles of the Green New Deal, and and apart from it being um, a, a sort of effective tool anyway to transition our economy from where we are to where we need to be, it would actually be um, innovative and it would therefore attract a younger demographic that we so desperately need. So I suppose um, from a Kroger's, Kroger perspective, we know that uh, if we uh, uh, ask, uh, if Kroger is successful and extract gas, government will receive uh, substantial, uh, potentially substantial revenues uh, by way of uh, taxation and uh, fees and the like. Um, potentially then with the, the Green New Deal, what you're looking at is, and I'll use an example, hempcrete, which is something I've used on, on, on my house, a uh, great way of re- retrofitting insulation on the outside of, of, of properties. Um, hemp can be grown on the island. Lime can be extracted on the island. So effectively, you've got two new industries uh, as well as the, the new building industry. Uh, so that's the kind of thing, presumably, you mean uh, by, by way Absolutely. of a Green New Deal? Perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. A hempcrete would be something that we could actually do ourselves. And therefore, we would be looking at um, a higher level of security, not just energy security, but actually production as well of that, which, you know, which how much more future proof can we get than that? And that's what we need to be looking at we we genuinely need to be looking at the big picture here and saying how is the world going not just us but what direction is the world heading in and that that once you look at the science we we do actually need to be looking at um future proofing our island and that is is a brilliant example of how we could do that well uh, we'll have to take a break now uh, after the break uh, i hope the, the minister's well prepared because i'm going to grill her on the Department of Environment, Food and Agriculture's uh, new uh, department plan. So we're talking to Joni Farragher, 
uh, MHK for Douglas East, Claire Barber, MHK for Douglas East, but also uh, Minister for Environment, Food and Agriculture, and uh, Eric Evenson, who is a director of Kroger, among many other things. So, Minister, uh, your department then, um, it's uh, it's a good plan. It's There's, there's lots there. Um, I suppose the, the first thing that uh, struck me uh, when I looked at this plan is that the department does an awful lot of uh, regulation and what I suppose many people might see as peripheral stuff, but the real core functions of the department, of well, of any government, I would say, is to make sure that we've uh, got secure uh, food sources, secure energy sources, secure water sources and uh, secure housing. Three of those are covered by your department, um, but you could have been forgiven for missing them in, in, in the department plan because there's so much else that the department appears to be doing. Has, has, is this the, the, the symptom of, of, of the, the, the illness that has struck government, that we just take on far too many things and then the core functions seem to, seem to sort of get le- left to, to one side? I think it's interesting, actually, because um, DEFA always, I probably regret saying it, you know, but almost flies under the radar a little bit um, in terms of the scale of what actually happens in the department. I mean, you'll know that, Phil, from your um, yes, your time in I, DEFA. I, I used to love it when someone would ask me a question. Like, Go on, please ask me a question. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing because, you, you know, we do get, um, you know, an odd question, but does other departments get significantly more? And I mean, the officers are obviously going to shout at me when I go back and uh, <laughs> I mean, like, we're going to get loads of questions and we haven't got the time to do them all as everything else. But I think there, there is something around... Um, that we wanted to lay out just the scale of what the department's actually doing, not just on land, of course, but also in the marine environment, um, you know, with the territorial water taking up 86% of our, our overall area, um, you know, and there's all sorts of exciting projects going on around blue carbon, um, you know, marine spatial planning, things that you know, we'd like to do there to look at the opportunities that our territorial seabed offers. Um, and some of that then, you know, is very much us working with the Department of Infrastructure because they hold the the leasing um, uh, responsibility there. But I think that was the, the sort of first part of the plan was just to try and lay out the scale of it. But I think it's interesting the point you make because one of the, the things we've spent quite a lot of time um, working through in the department since myself, Claire and Michelle have been there um, and working with the officers is actually just looking at what it is the department does and why it does some of that stuff. And I think if you look at the evolution of the department, because so much of the department is now regulatory, um, actually, it means that the time for policy can be really challenged. Um, and I think it's interesting. I've obviously spent a lot of time talking to farmers, um, you know, and, and wanting to really understand the challenges that the, the farming sector face. And um, one of the things that's been said to me by quite a few people is, you know, back in the good old days, we used to get people from DEFA would come out and they'd talk to us about what we could do and they'd give some advice and talk about different um, funds we might be able to access and talk about the policies that are going on and now if someone from DEFA turns up people panic because there must be something that's gone wrong Um, and I think that really plays to the fact that we are really focused on regulation and I think somehow we need to find a way to regain the balance um, and to make those relationships more positive again which I think it's fair to say they, they haven't been for a while. Um, but equally, I think when you look at uh, how some of these things have come about, and a lot of it comes around from Tim Ward debate where someone says, oh, you know, there's a problem here. So what do we do? We regulate. We put regulation in. And I think 
you know, in the purest sense, it's the right thing to do. And I think we understand why it's come about. But inevitably, if you've got 10 people in a team, the more regulatory function you put on that team, the more you detract from their ability to spend time on policy and the the positive work that had previously happened. I think that is a, a result, essentially, of a, a far more regulated world that we all live in. And we need to find a way to to find a, a middle ground, I think it would be fair to say. And, and potentially, actually, the question that is down for you on uh, this uh, the, this week's uh, Timwald question paper mm-hmm. uh, is, is a great uh, um, example of this, that uh, what, what really needs to happen is people need to be employed either by the department or perhaps uh, from volunteer groups to go up and ensure that uh, the, the, the routes across the uplands actually have decent uh, drainage to stop massive big ruts occurring when uh, people use the the uplands and whether that be uh, motorbikes or or whether it be uh, push bikes uh, what's the what's the modern word for push bikes (laughs) Uh, you know those those fancy (laughs) fancy off-road bicycle things Um, you're so busy regulating stuff that uh, there's not enough resource left to send a man up with a shovel to to sort of cut a few drainage routes. And it's interesting that you use that example because obviously I'll be giving an answer about the the green lanes on Tuesday. Um, But I think one of the things that's come out from conversations early on is we could regulate it more. You know, we could, something's been looked at before. Are there some technological solutions? Are there way people have to take a license if they're going to be off-road motorcycling, for example, so that we've got an idea of who, um, you know, is, is riding in places when they're riding where they shouldn't be um you know so it's again you know are we inadvertently walking into a trap where it feels like the easiest solution is to prevent people doing the thing that's causing the damage when actually maybe we should as you say be sending more people out to to maintain to to mean that when they are used it doesn't cause the damage um I'm not going to pretend I've got all the answers, Phil. Well, no, um, I, I, you know, I hunted for some years and never found all the answers. <laughs> it's one of a number of examples, though, of that that conversation as to how you best manage a situation. And, and planning, of course, is another great example of this. We've got some uh, very uh, clear uh, planning rules mm-hmm. and hardly any um, a resource available to actually enforce the the, 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 the planning rules. Yes, yeah, so again, though, interestingly, so in July, Tim Ward, I probably should come back for July, maybe. <laughs> well, you're um, always welcome. <laughs> there's um, a built environment project, which has been uh, a, a partnership, really, between Cabinet Office, um, DEFA planning and building control team, um, and also um, Department for Enterprise, looking at... Uh, things that have been barriers and things that the planning officers will have been telling you when you were there that you know the website isn't up to par that resource wise they're limited in terms of what they can do and there's more and more things they have to look at when a planning application comes in but essentially the resource to do it is the same so what happens is it takes longer and longer to hear applications but that's because they're fulfilling things that they've been asked to do and you know you would argue rightly that we're looking into various elements around our biodiversity and our nature and we want to make sure we 
we're not having an adverse impact. But all of that stuff takes time. So that project is looking at how we can uh, both improve the, the interface with planning, really free the planning team up to do that work that they are trained and skilled to do and that they want to do and, and make it work better for them and for the, the service user. So there's a, an update going to be coming to July, Tim Ward, around that. Um, which I hope will be a, a really positive piece of work that will bring together a lot of the elements the planning team have been sort of saying over here <laughs> for many, many years um, and actually getting the the three departments together and saying, let's get our heads down and really come up with something um, that, will, that will work for the island. Um, because, I mean, people often say, oh, you know, planning takes so long, so frustrating. And so, like, OK, so do you want to just get rid of planning <laughs> you know because i think we'd all complain if all of our greenfields were were just built uh, all over and, uh, actually so uh, in my experience as, as planning minister uh, the two of the larger developers on the island uh, both said to me actually you know what planning in the isle of man is streamlined simple and quick compared with where we we operate in, in in the uk yeah i'm not sure it's quite as, as simple as many people think uh, when, when it comes to planning and economic development yeah no absolutely i mean you've got the planning team um then you've got the appeals process but as i say i think it's the complexity of some of the applications even relatively simple ones and you know it's looking at where we can use permitted development orders but do that in a way that we're all comfortable isn't going to inadvertently lead to overdevelopment um and making sure that the planning policy which of course sits in cabinet office um is actually right and and appropriate for the current uh, you know situation we find ourselves in as an island because i mean i think what's great is we've got planning policy that is specific to us as it should be um but we need to make sure that we aren't you know missing out on opportunities to address things that could be changed within that planning policy to make it work better for us and one of the key areas and i will bring the other guests in uh, if, if, if they're if they're interested at this stage uh, the, the key uh, point to me uh, it, and it was only a relatively short sentence but uh, developing a food security and an energy security policy um, those were were in my mind the, the fundamentals for the department alongside of course uh, uh, a, a proper plan to deal with or, or to cope with uh, climate change um in terms of food, you've hardly got any officers left doing the work. I mean, out of the, the, the total of how many is the 182 officers, there's four working on agriculture. There's 17 in the fisheries division, but I suspect they're not all actively engaged in, in supporting the fisheries industry. And two in working on food and drink, which doesn't seem a lot bearing in mind where we're going in terms of cost of living uh, crisis at the moment and food price, prices soaring. Um, yeah, it must be difficult being Minister for Environment, Food and Agriculture when you uh, have such limited resource to, to, to do the policy stuff. I think... Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, again, that's why we wanted to put that representation out, both of the people in the department and where they are and and the to the scope of what's covered within the department. Um, so as you say, you, you know, it's a relatively small team around agriculture and food, um, you know, covering a, a big area. But then what you do have is another you know, series of areas such as animal health, which have quite a big interplay into our farming and agriculture, certainly in terms of uh, meat production um, because of... The regulatory aspect so it goes back to that conversation really that we had before um, where there is a number of different elements 
uh, of different teams in DEF are doing things that are very much interconnected. But one of, the, as I say, one of the projects that we have going on in the department is looking at what we're doing and why, um, and looking at where it's a statutory obligation, where it's something that actually it's just a nice to have. Um, and then there will have to be some quite probably challenging conversations around what really it is that government want you know, government is wanted to be providing um, in the opinion of the public because I think you know on the Isle of Man we've got lots of things that have fallen into um, government ownership and government operation um, but actually we need to understand what our core purpose is and we need to maybe look at how we refocus um, just touching on the fisheries obviously we've got inland fisheries we've got the offshore fisheries we've got the Barul doing patrols as well so there's all of these other bits of, of that which is why the numbers are are higher um, and making sure that we're protecting our territorial waters and our our stocks um, and that they're being properly uh, caught against the catch limits so there's all this other work that goes on again regulatory <laughs> in nature um, but you know, I think that's why people often you know, talked about the fact when you look at DEFA so much of it now is is regulation and we need to make sure we don't lose the policy um, because actually there's so much, as you say, certainly we've seen the um, issues around food security um, exacerbated by uh, the war in Ukraine um, and the uh, input costs, which were already rising with cost of fertiliser, you know, nitrogen <laughs> through the roof, um, grain costs, the cost of gas is affecting the operation for um, our agriculture sector. And that is certainly of significant concern. So we're looking at the minute how we can restructure and, and push additional payments for producers to make sure that gets to the right people and sustains our industry. Um, and we're doing that against a backdrop where the UK, of course, are saying actually we're going to pull um, money and support from a lot of the farming sector so I, it's certainly not a route that I want to go down at all you know I want to make sure we're continuing to support that and I think as you say it's so much uh, more important almost that food security when we are a small island nation um, so it's looking at areas where either we need to be self-sufficient other areas where perhaps in an emergency we could change production slightly to give ourselves the security we're looking for and in some some areas that's about looking at how we secure the import routes because there are some things we simply will never produce on the island by virtue of our climate and so forth and uh, Joni uh, Farragher I mean obviously from a Labour Party point of view um, traditionally perhaps the, um, the the Department for Environment Food and Agriculture and its forerunners over the years haven't really attracted much Labour Party interest because on the whole it's uh, uh, you've been more interested in in things like social housing and uh, um, ensuring that people can afford to to, to live, uh, and yet, you know, we've got those two big items now that are causing many people, particularly people on lower incomes, uh, great problems: uh, food and energy. Um, so, is is this you know is the Labour Party's focus starting to switch onto this department at all? Um, well, I guess you could say that that. Because the uh, Manx Labour Party, just like all Labour movements, has always um, been keen on pushing the environmental the angle of um, we need to act on the climate science. Um, I was originally um, elected as the Green Issues Coordinator in the Manx Labour Party um, 2017, 2018, I think that was, and that was my original role in the Manx Labour Party. Um, and then I, I've moved on to... to being elected as a leader now, but um, I've always had quite a, a strong interest in um, what is actually happening with um, with human 
interaction with our with our atmosphere and how that's changing um, our, 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 our world, our earth. And so I think that's probably the area in which, as you say now, and rightly so, it is impacting upon food and energy security. Um, both of those, though, are, are completely inextricably tied up with climate change as well and, and will never be will never be torn asunder. So that they, they are in areas that, that if we look at the science, we do need to act upon both of those and robustly and, and urgently, actually. And that, that's not, I don't think that's something that very many people would, would argue with, but for sure is, is a strong um, aspect of our, of our manifesto and was for the general election as well. And, and certainly when it comes to um, mitigating against the impacts of climate change, the agricultural industry and indeed the, uh, the fisheries industry to a certain extent uh, have an opportunity, you know, have the ability to help influence policy. 80% of the uh, the land on the island is, is owned and operated by farmers. Um, much of the rest is, is, is in government uh, ownership. Um, and policies and decisions taken by farmers in particular in terms of what they're going to grow and how many trees they're going to m- maintain in their hedgerows and in corners of fields, these sorts of things are really important. So, um, you know, the minister's uh, comment there that uh, the, the department is seen by the, the, the stewards of the landscape as being there to, when, when th- things are going wrong rather than there t- necessarily to, to build that uh, productive relationship. That must be a bit of a concern to hear. Yeah, I guess so. It is. Um, but we certainly have got the right person in the role as minister, in, in, in my view. And um, I think that that's heading in the right direction. Um, but I do, you know, I do obviously agree with you that the custodians of our of our land, I suppose, 80 percent um, being owned by um, by farmers, that that is a, a big area to tap into. Um, you know, I know that the um, national. National Farmers Association in the in the UK has its own net zero target, which is very ambitious actually, and we don't we don't have that over here. It might be something for us to to kind of aim towards, um, because actually the the farmers in the UK have a more ambitious target than than the national target. Um, so that that's something that, that we we maybe could could look into, and I do think that there's a huge role that they have to to play, and that we do need to be actually um, having those dialogues and 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 being um, open with each other about how we can move forwards and and accepting that role of the farmers because it's an important one and eric i, I suppose um you know, your, your interest uh, from a kroger perspective will be in in relation to the, the department's um requirement to produce energy policies and uh, proper um strategies to 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 cope with uh, climate change have you a, a view on, on, on the department's uh, role, the department's in, in engagement from what we've heard so far from the minister? Our initial uh, contact and involvement with uh, DEF is to, to do the environmental studies that we need to do prior to going out and doing the activities offshore. But on the other side of the coin, if you have a reliable, uh, I won't say cheap, but reasonably priced and price-capped energy, uh, which can provide a... a, a a reasonably priced energy to the farmers and to other people who are, are trying to produce the food, plus some of the new technology that's coming where we're going to perhaps start to run tractors on ammonia and be able to produce that ammonia here on the island uh, with uh, the same carbon footprint as if we produce the uh, hydrogen with um, wind, wind power, you see. So the other side of the coin is is that all of these things need money and and. Kroger knows from its 2D seismic that there's 10 billion therms of gas out there. And gas, let's say, is just pick a figure, 
it, well, it's pretty volatile right now, but at £1.50, so we have around £15 billion pounds of, uh, of uh, resource out there, which the government is going to get over half, and then they're going to get 20% VAT on top of that, and it's going to provide funding to be able to create these things, create the new Green Deal, create the other industries around the periphery of having a robust and, economy. And, and you know, when, when you say it's, it's going to get half, half of £15 billion, $7.5 billion, um, that, that sounds like a very confident statement. It is very confident. We know from the 2D seismic and the previous drilling out there that there's a 10 billion recoverable. When we do the 3D seismic, which gives us a much better view, we are very optimistic, as, as business people can be, uh, that uh, there is more than that. But that's just part of the picture. That's the gas side. When we put up 60 megawatts of uh, wind powers, which is what we're going to do, and when we actually start producing hydrogen and producing the derivatives of the hydrogen production, that's even more uh, revenue. And that means if we're producing that, that we reduce the gas extraction because now we have another gas that we mix it with. And it prolongs our asset to quite long, decades more. So to get these strategies done and be able to find the funding and find the willpower and the motivation for people to come here and do these things... We do need uh, funding, and that's what Kroger will be providing to the government. Final word then to the minister. Um, are you confident that uh, Tinwald is going to back your uh, plan, and will you be begging people to actually, go on, please say something about my, <laughs> my department? <laughs> I don't know. I did have a... I, I was thinking back, because I think the uh, Treasury and Enterprise plans are, didn't have a huge number of uh, submissions. But, you know, I think for me, this is the first year of, of having a department department plan in this form um, and I very much want it to be a listening exercise you know next next time we'll be reporting back against these uh, the, the metrics and we're you know we've got the actions laid out in the plan but we're also going to put some KPIs together but I very much want to hear from members what those KPIs for them would look like um, you know to work alongside those ones that as a department we we see as being important because ultimately the the plan isn't for the department it's written by the department but essentially it's for all of us um, so absolutely I hope it will be a, an engaging conversation and I'm certainly there to listen. That was Joni Farragher, Claire Barber and Eric Evenson. Will Kroger's gas help fund our transition to a brighter, greener future? And if not, where will the money come from? And is government too focused on regulating everything? I hope you enjoyed Perspective. Please get in touch with philgorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on the programme. And don't forget, the podcast is available from Manx Radio's website. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn, Gorham Ayos and Thanks for listening. <laughs>